All righty. I, ho I hope you've got a little bandwidth for some extended um, Easter vibrations today. Um, you know, Easter is such an important uh, festival. Can't really just do it justice in one one week. Uh, I know Michigan weather is certainly uh, cooperating with the Easter vibration. I kind of feel sorry for for James Lamb and Lori out there in Burbank, California, where it's like nice weather all the time. So they don't have like that dopamine jolt of, of spring that we get here in Michigan after languishing in grayness for about uh, six months uh, solid. So it's like it's like we're let out of solitary confinement into the beautiful uh, world springtime in Michigan. You got to love it. Anyway, um, I have been uh, trying to make sense of the resurrection since I first read the Gospels when I was uh, about 19 years old. I, I was definitely in need of a higher power as I felt my own powers were totally insufficient for my uh, new responsibilities. Uh, my portal into engaging a higher power was and continues to be the figure I met in the Gospels when I first started reading them, um, which cannot help but raise the question of resurrection, what we celebrate on Easter Sunday, and in a sense, something we celebrate every every Sunday. Um, you know, we all lean into different sources at different times for our faith. Um, I, I was on a long drive yesterday from up north back up. It was like driving from uh, winter into summer. It's quite an experience. And uh, Julia stays uh, awake when she's driving by singing hymns. So she was a choir director for many years, been leading people and singing hymns like for her whole life. And so she was singing Easter hymns like the strife is o'er, Christ the Lord is risen today, welcome happy morning, a whole bunch of hymns that I'd, I'd never uh, ever heard of. Um, the mood in the car was majestic and inspiring and hopeful in the face of death. Uh, Easter hymns, uh, window into the resurrection. Um, but as a longtime reader of the Gospels, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one actually picks up a different vibe around resurrection. Maybe it's more like confused fascination. So this year I paid attention to how the various accounts differ uh, in Mark, Matthew, Luke, John, and also uh, 1 Corinthians. So if Jesus died around 26 uh, in the common era, the earliest mention of resurrection is actually not in one of the four gospels. It's in um, 1 Corinthians 15, a, a letter written by Paul. And that letter is dated pretty reliably around 50. CE. So the, the earliest gospel, Mark, is a little later uh, than, than Paul's, probably 20 years later than Paul's letter. And then um, Matthew probably comes after that, then Luke, and then the last arriving gospel, maybe around 90 CE, possibly later. 90 is a pretty credible date for it, the gospel of John. So, you know, there's lots of differences between the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the most similar uh, to each other. John's quite a bit different than all three. Um, there's a lot of um, continuity or harmony around the accounts of the, the crucifixion on Friday. But then it gets jagged on Easter morning and, and following um, within the Gospels. Um, 
You should have seen me going back and forth to compare and contrast. I forgot to grab it here, but I was using my uh, NRSV, New Revised Standard Annotated Study Bible, which is duct taped, and there's a new version coming out, which I've ordered. This this one, though, I've got loose maps, and it's a, it's a mess. It, it took me a couple of hours just to flip back and forth between Matthew and Mark and Luke and John to compare and contrast how they how they differed in the accounts of the resurrection. Um, and <laughs> I had just put in about two hours and I'm like jotting down the differences and trying to keep track and going back and forth and papers flying out. And uh, Julia comes home from uh, work and she's, and I tell her what I'm doing, you know, and she says, oh, have you tried the University of Toronto site? They have a feature that allows you to put all four gospels side by side on one page. And I'm like, oh my gosh, where were you when I needed you? But um, so if you ever do it, use the University of Toronto gospel parallel site. But when you compare these accounts and you see the difference between the four or five different accounts, one thing is super obvious. Whoever compiled each of these did not consult with the others to get their stories straight. So there's a lot of commonality. There's a lot of common threads, but, but also differing and sometimes conflicting details. Careful readers who are comparing and contrasting the accounts end up um, mirroring the confusion that the earliest disciples are depicted as having on the first Easter morning. So the earliest, 1 Corinthians 15, is, is, uh, just includes a quick summary. It, it goes something like this. First, Jesus appeared to Cephas, the Aramaic term for Peter, then to the 12, not the 11, the 12, that's interesting, then to 500 followers at one time, then to James, then to all the apostles, then um, as to one untimely born uh, to me. So all four gospels say Jesus made his earliest appearances to women. Um, none mention the 500, uh, and none indicate an appearance to Judas, who would have been included in the 12. So, you know, there's some differences there between Paul's rendering and uh, some of the details in the four Gospels. The earliest Gospel, uh, the Gospel of Mark, is made probably the most confused because different ancient manuscripts scripts of Mark's Gospel uh, uh, are now circulating, and, and they include four different endings. So if you go to the Gospel of Mark, you see all these parenthetical things, and it's loaded with footnotes because there's literally four different endings for the Gospel of Mark, depending on which manuscript you're using. And the earliest manuscript ends the most abruptly. In, in that one, Mary Magdala, Mary the mother of James, and uh, Salome, Salome, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. They arrive at the tomb on Easter morning to find, quote, a young man dressed in a white robe sitting there who reports that Jesus isn't there. He's awakened, gives instructions to go tell Peter and the disciples. Then this oldest version of Mark ends very abruptly with this, this last line. Then they went bolting out of the tomb, convulsed and out of their minds with shock, but they said nothing to anyone as they were terrified. So other versions of Mark, the, the later ones, have more like proper endings where the loose ends are tied up. But even then, some of the details in these different versions 
don't quite jive. So Mark is like that most raggedy uh, of the four Gospels. Somewhat later than Mark is Matthew with a slightly different set of women uh, visiting the tomb on Sunday morning. And then Matthew adds, there was a great earthquake and an angel descended from the sky, rolled away the large stone, sat on it, and tells them to go to uh, tell the others that Jesus will meet them in Galilee. So in Matthew, Jesus only appears to the Marys, the two Marys, and some other women in Jerusalem, and he only appears to the men disciples when they eventually go back up north to the Galilee. I should mention that Mark and Matthew both report an earthquake at the moment of Jesus' death on Friday. And Matthew adds that many dead people rose from the graves in Jerusalem at that moment. No one else mentions this extraordinary detail, which I think is probably, a, it's more like a theological point rather than an historical one. Ancient writings sometimes mixed uh, mythic or theological uh, kind of events with what we think of as historical events, kind of par for the course. This is probably what's going on, but who knows? Either way, it's, uh, it's actually so inexplicable that the heavily footnoted New Oxford Annotated Study Bible doesn't even include a footnote about this one. So Luke's Gospel with access, uh, who pro Luke probably had access to Mark's Gospel and Matthew's Gospel or the source for those two Gospels. Um, that Gospel, Luke, has two Marys, but also um, Joanna arriving at an empty tomb. But now, uh, in Luke, it says two men, remember Mark said one man, two men in garments that look like lightning, tell them Jesus is awakened. They report this to the 11 disciples. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians says the 12. Um, and the 11 disciples re regard their report, uh, the report of the women as nonsense. Luke then offers a unique report of two disciples on a walk from Jerusalem to a village outside of Jerusalem called Emmaus on the Sunday afternoon of the first Easter. So a stranger joins them and Luke records an extended and, and kind of a psychologically astute encounter with the stranger who acts as though he hasn't heard of the events in Jerusalem. Uh, these disciples are, are sad and they're baffled about the empty tomb rumors that have been circulating. Uh, that day, the, the, the stranger then expounds on how the law of Moses and the prophets might shed light on these events, so even though he hasn't heard of them, apparently. Um, as evening falls, they arrive at, at Emmaus, and they're going to have a dine in an inn where the stranger joins them for a meal. And when he blesses the bread, it's like, poof! Uh, they recognize the stranger as Jesus in that moment, and then he disappears. Later, they remember that their hearts were burning within them when he spoke to them on the road, and then they hurry back to Jerusalem to tell the others. So on that account, they, the, the, the 11 in Jerusalem um, get, uh, get this report. So the accounts themselves, when they're compared, they, they have these confusing details, but they also depict the disciples in various states of confusion on that first Easter Sunday. 
John's gospel, and we're, we're almost done with the rehearsing the differences part. John's gospel is the latest of the four. Um, and by now you can tell the, the jagged edges of the various reports have kind of been worn off. Instead, in John's gospel, you have a series of five like uh, vignettes, five appearances that re kind, of, kind of read like psychological realism, a form of writing that we associate with the modern era. So first, Mary of Magdala at the empty tomb, that's John chapter 20, encounters someone she takes at first to be the gardener until she realizes the gardener is Jesus and falls at his feet weeping and they have a very poignant encounter. Then Jesus appears to uh, 10 of the uh, disciples, uh, so minus Judas and Thomas, who are hiding out in a room in Jerusalem. I think that happens in the evening of, um, of that first e Easter. A week later in John's Gospel, Jesus appears to the same group, plus Thomas, again in Jerusalem. Jesus lets uh, Thomas touch his scarred side. So that's fascinating. He's risen, but the scars remain. That's the lectionary re reading in many churches for the Sunday after Easter. Weeks later, in the northern part of Israel, so Galilee now, Peter and four others are out fishing all night. They catch nothing. And someone from the shore calls out to them and suggests a place to put down their nets. They do so. They have an incredible catch, 153 <laughs> fish. I don't know why that detail is included in John's Gospel. And, and the person on the shore, who turns out to be Jesus, uh, beckons them in and they and serves them breakfast around a campfire and then there's this uh, extended walk with Peter where Jesus the risen Jesus and Peter kind of repair their their fractured relationship um, so if you were going to turn something into a play with five scenes you would definitely use the Gospel of John so you know can you imagine being a New York Times reporter in Jerusalem trying to sort this all out uh, the Gospels don't even try to sort it out. They, they just let these disparities between the various accounts stand. So my favorites of, the, of these five are probably um, the Gospel of John versions of the resurrection. And then that, um, that original version of Mark's Gospel. So John, because the Jesus that I've, I have the most sense of personal connection to, um, the, the Jesus who's come in, in, into my imagination in occasionally vivid ways over my lifetime, um, in a sense that the, the Jesus I most trust feels most like the post-Easter Jesus in the Gospel of John, even more so than the pre-resurrection Jesus in John's Gospel. Uh, so that's, that's a favorite. My other favorite is very different. It's the oldest version of Mark the one that ends so abruptly. And I like this uh, version because it, it really makes room for my more agnostic self, the, 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 you know, can all this really be true part of my brain? So to recap the ending for Mark there and the original ending, you have the two Marys and a Salome at the empty tomb, a young man dressed in white uh, says that Jesus is awakened, he's not there. And then the gospel literally ends with, then they went bolting out of the tomb, convulsed and out of their minds with shock, 
but they said nothing to anyone as they were terrified. So can you imagine if like that were the only gospel that we had? Uh, talk about an ending that says you fill in the blanks. It's, it's like the gospel of Mark, this original ending leaves the reader with an invitation to fill in the blanks for ourselves, which is a lot like, you know, the situation we find ourselves in when we hear these accounts of the risen Jesus. So people who don't always pay attention to these differing details uh, in these accounts in the New Testament often try to turn this into a story that fits together perfectly and then demands belief with absolute certainty. Um, you know, I, I think that's what you get when you take these original documents and then you slap a thick coat of religious varnish on top to smooth out all the rough places in order to sell a religious brand of certainty about matters that really defy certainty. So if, if you strip away the varnish, you're left with a confusion, but it's a kind of confusion that often uh, also goes along with the experience of wonder, just to tease that out a bit. So I've learned um, to distrust two diff very different approaches to the resurrection. The first approach um, that I've learned to distrust is the one I just mentioned, the thick religious varnish version that trucks in absolutes and certainties regarding the resurrection. I mean, how can any of us claim absolute certainty about anything, anything having to do with the after death experience? The other approach I've learned to distrust is maybe like the mirror opposite of that one. It's the, the de debunkers who are certain it's all a load of bunk and you're an idiot to believe it. Well, that, that's fine for a privileged white guy to assert. I mean, that's the demographic of most of the famous debunkers, but it's removing one of the most powerful parts of the story for oppressed people. And, and, and the Bible was written by oppressed people for oppressed people to oppressed people about a God who is on the side of oppressed people. Um, and removing the resurrection is just this, you know, load of bunk is, is depriving um, the people for whom these stories were written of something that's very powerful. Since a risen Jesus represents a faith perspective that claims that the murdered oppressed get the final word and not their oppressors. This, this is just a truly subversive thing to believe that empowers resistance to oppression. So I prefer um, like the confused wonder approach to the resurrection. Like um, when Diane uh, does one of her kids minutes and I noticed Francis um, did this uh, today also, um, you know, tells a story or makes a, uh, you know, rehearses something and then ends with some open-ended I wonder questions. It's just a great way for kids to engage the stories that we find in the Bible and for us, for all of us too. And wonder, think about wonder, and it seems to have a few ingredients. Um, when something evokes wonder, there's always some sense in which it's beyond our normal expectations. 
uh, it arouses our curiosity. And we also have like at least an initial confusion about it. So in the Hebrew Bible and then in the New Testament, which is really like um, interpretation of the Hebrew Bible, um, there's, there's actually no word for miracle. There's no word in the original languages of the Bible for miracle. And there's actually no word for supernatural. The terms that are used are sign and wonder. Um, so we can come up with our own I wonder questions. And I guess we're moving into a kind of time of reflection now. On Palm Sunday, Emily told the Easter story from Palm Sunday, the week before, Sunday before Easter, onwards through Easter, and how a risen Jesus is the voice of the oppressed that cannot be silenced. So th this is something that I, a perspective that I didn't encounter until later than life, and I, I, later in life, and I find it really compelling. To me, today, the most compelling aspect of the resurrection if I put it into an I wonder question is, I wonder what the world would be like if more people believe the universe is sending signals that despite appearances, oppressors don't get the last word and the oppressed do. Uh, that to me is like one of the most compelling things about the resurrection. Then um, the closer I get statistically in the actuarial <laughs> science to my expiration date, um, the possibility of resurrection provokes um, this I wonder question. I, I wonder if a human personality after death continues in a different form that fits dimensions that go beyond our space-time four. A little bit of a science twist to that. I wonder what other hints there may be that such a thing is plausible. I think a lot more about this as I get older. Um, the curious Bible nerd in me has several I wonder questions, which I will not, <laughs> I won't subject you to. I'll, I'll pare it down to two. Because for me, the Bible nerdy questions are like often the um, earliest layers that if I keep digging, get me down to things that are much more um, meaningful than just these kind of nerdy questions but so i've learned to pursue them so so a couple for me is i wonder why matthew mark and luke and john all have jesus appearing first to some women um, but paul doesn't mention the women I'm like what's going on there i wonder how whoever wrote the gospel of john um, who the scholars say had such a uh, the most limited Greek vocabulary, describes the encounters with the risen Jesus with such psychological subtlety. I wonder why I often like the risen Jesus in John better than the flesh and blood Jesus of the earlier chapters in John. These, these are my nerdy questions. Uh, the politically frustrated and concern part of me has an I wonder question. I would not advise you to focus on it for too long. It might ruin your Sunday. I wonder how people can claim any allegiance to Christianity and have any sense of sympathy or admiration or apathy to give um, Vladimir Putin a pass. 
Like, I just don't get that. I wonder, well, how's, how's that even possible? Uh, the historically curious part of me has this one. I wonder how it was that this peasant carpenter from rabbi from Galilee who died young along with so many other Jewish men of his time becomes the most famous Jewish figure in all the world to all these different nations. And now after all these I wonder questions, I wonder why I've spent most of my life wondering about things like this. So let's, um, let's just take maybe another 30 seconds uh, of quiet, and this will give us all an opportunity if we want to um, maybe formulate our own a wonder question uh, that maybe resonates with us about these things. Go ahead. Okie dokie, on to what's next. I think that's I think that's Pastor Caroline, right? <laughs> 